welcome to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here as we broadcast from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America, and also the epicenter of caucus chaos, which, uh, yeah, who knows if we'll ever know what really happened on February 3rd. Before we dig into a conversation about that and about a proposed alternative, I want to take a second to thank some of our local business partners. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, located on 20th and Woodland in the Sherman Hill neighborhood. That's my grocery store and a fantastic place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Gateway also has a catering service that is really fantastic. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. National Axe, local acts, uh, they have the premier location for Jazz and Cabaret in the Des Moines metro. That's Noche. And thanks also to Ritual Cafe, located on 13th Street in downtown Des Moines. Fair trade coffee, fair trade tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. That's Ritual Cafe. All right, so I want to make a proposal about what to do to address all the problems that have come to the surface, bubbled to the surface because of the caucus chaos. But first, I got to I got to I got to say hello to Joe Biden again. Uh, this time from a safe distance, where I won't be pushed or have my lapels grabbed. But um, I, apparently, I'm not the only one. I mean, I know I'm not the only one he's um, told to go vote for somebody else. I know I'm not the only one he's gotten into a kind of a, a little um, pissing match with. But um, what happened in New Hampshire to me, uh, to this uh, young gal who was asking about, you know, it was a polite, uh, a difficult question, but a polite one. I just, I, I'm absolutely baffled by his response. And I think many of us are. And it's, um, it's, it's allowed a, an entirely um, you know, unfamiliar phrase to enter the, the vernacular so that we now... Um, we now have a new insult to throw around to, with, to people if we really want to call them something, uh, you know, a little bit, a little bit off, off color. Uh, anyway, I, we're going to play this clip from this, um, this uh, engagement between Joe Biden and a student in New Hampshire. Here we go. <laughs> um, so you're arguably the candidate with the greatest advantage in this race. You've been the vice president. You weren't burdened down by the impeachment trials. So or in the participation. So how do you explain the performance in Iowa and why should the voters believe that you can win the national election? It's a good question. Number one, Iowa's a Democratic caucus. You ever been to a caucus? No, you haven't. You're a lying dog-faced pony soldier. You said you were, but you're, you're, now you got to be honest. I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah, that, that, that is so crazy on so many levels. Uh, she actually, according to reports, she actually responded, no, she hadn't been to a caucus. So why would he then accuse her of saying that she had and then, and then call her a dog? You don't, you don't call anybody a dog-faced anything. Uh, I know this is a reference to a movie called Pony Soldier, perhaps. Uh, I mean, again, Joe Biden is a candidate who... Um, Recommended that one thing families could do to be uh, to be um, more connected was to uh, was to turn on the record player, uh, <laughs> which uh, some of us are still laughing about. Even even guys who are like say sixty one are still laughing about turning on the record player. But um, this is a movie from nineteen fifty two called Pony Soldier, which was uh, I believe it was a John Wayne film, and it was uh, it was openly, blatantly, and and embarrassingly anti Native American. 
it's it's a horrible film, a horrible perspective, and you know that 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 phrase was used in that film, and that maybe what Joe Biden, who was probably I mean maybe he saw that as a kid and it stuck in his head. I, why why would you call a woman or anybody for that matter dog faced? I mean that's a huge insult. And even if she did say she had been to an Iowa caucus, and even if he did suspect her of lying, and again, it sounds like she indicated she hadn't been. <laughs> so it's just bizarre on so many levels. And um, Pony Soldier, I, I, you know, there, there are people, I think, trying to read too much into that, thinking, well, maybe that's, a, that's an insult to, you know, the real soldiers, in, in terms of a cavalry, um, ride on horses, right? But you're, if, you're, if you're not a very good soldier, I guess you get stuck with a pony. I, I think that's reading too much into it. I think it's probably a reference to this extremely racist and anti-Native American film from 1952. And it just, it just, the whole thing just boggles the mind. You know, she said, no, she hadn't been to a caucus, and yet you pretend that she said yes. Then you call her dog-faced, and then you had this pony soldier reference. You know, I, I think... One thing that became clear to a lot of Iowans was that Joe Biden was not the best gamble in terms of a potential Democratic nominee. Uh, there were more and more people who saw more and more red flags. And I think the voters in New Hampshire just saw a huge red flag. And I, you know, I, I've been predicting for a long time that, uh, that Joe Biden would not be in this race uh, for the long haul. I actually thought he might have been, uh, might have, made his exit a little bit earlier. But um, apparently uh, he's still in. But the uh, dog face pony soldier comment, you know, it's just going to be, it's just another another um, sign pointing to the exit door. We'll see what happens, but uh, I, I don't see Joe Biden being around much longer. And again, I'm, I'm saying that in terms of a, a presidential candidate. Honestly, Joe Biden's a nice guy. Um, I had the pleasure of spending a whole hour with Joe Biden back in 2006. And he's a nice guy. We had a beer. We played a game of pool. I, I answered a question of his. And about 20 seconds into that answer, he started talking. And he never stopped talking. <laughs> he's very engaging. He's a horrible listener. Horrible listener. Uh, great story. He's very engaging. Amazing background. Uh, growing up in a real working class family in Pennsylvania. And, uh, and uh, dealing with a stuttering problem. I mean, to go from having a stuttering problem to being as articulate and 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 out and, and and clear thinking as he as he well, at least clear speaking as he used to be. Again, I think there's something at play here that's not that's not being recognized by by the candidate and maybe by his closest friends and, and handlers. But he's not tracking real well, and uh, I think it's really important that voters notice that and have been calling it out. And that's one reason why. The Iowa caucuses are so important, and the New Hampshire primary, so important. And what happens in Nevada and South Carolina, really, really important. Because, because the, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the opportunity for voters to get to vet candidates directly, personally, to really, as we like to say here, kick the tires, see who they are, see how they respond under pressure, uh, see how they deal with uh, all sorts of different engagements that might not be expected. Uh, see how they deal with deal, for example, with uh, a bunch of people dressed up like penguins sitting in front of them. Uh, <laughs> so there's lots of different ways in which uh, which people in these early states get to engage with a candidate that doesn't happen in California or Texas or in the big states or even the small states that come later. You know, then those those campaign events 
or those interactions with candidates come primarily through an advertisement, through a television screen, through an impression on your, on your phone or your computer. And uh, that's not as helpful for democracy. Or as I like to call it, the Bloombergization of the, of the, of the political process. If, uh, if all you start seeing of a candidate is, in the case of Michael Bloomberg, uh, impressions on a screen or a billboard or his voice on a radio ad, you really don't know the person at all. You don't know that person. We have a chance to do that. And the caucuses have been a great opportunity for people to really get to know voters. Uh, I've, been, I've been at this since 1987, and I, I love it. I think it's, uh, it's really, really valuable. But let me ask you this. I, I mean, and I know that Iowans don't want to hear me say this, but I think nearly everybody in every other state will like what I'm about to say. Why should we always go first? You know, we, we, all, we, all like, we all like winners, we all like heroes, we all like, uh, like, um, like the entity that does well, whether it's a, a sports hero or a war figure or a politician, or in the, our case, a, a state that gets to have an important influence on the political process. But why should we go first? It reminds me of a map I saw over a year ago when the New England Patriots were about to play the Kansas City Chiefs in the uh, playoffs. And uh, at this point, the Patriots had won so many Super Bowls that people were starting to think, hey, we're sick of these. They were sick of these. We're as sick of the New England Patriots as baseball fans are of the New York Yankees. We want somebody else to win. We want to see somebody else have a chance. And there was a map that showed, uh, that showed the United States, uh, that were the states in the Union that were supporting the Patriots. There were six of them. They were all in the very Northeast. It was New England. And the rest of the country was all in red supporting the Kansas City Chiefs. And I, ha I feel that's how people probably feel about Iowa right now and maybe New Hampshire. And I understand that. And um, somebody should go first. And the process that exists where candidates get to be vetted to real people in real time, that should continue. It shouldn't be us. And, uh, I, you know, I, and I, honestly, I don't think it should be the same state every four years. Let's start rotating this process. I came up with a modest proposal, which um, received some very, uh, very genuine and uh, reasonable criticism. I said, let's start on February 6th. Uh, well, and, and that's a Tuesday in 2024. But, I, you know, some of the criticism was, well, why should it be on a Tuesday? Why not make it on a Saturday? And I'm thinking, well, why not make it two days? Why don't we have elections on Friday and Saturday every week somewhere else in the country? Friday and Saturday would, um, in early February, would kick off the presidential nominating process. It would be one state. It would be a small state. And I, I broke it out based on population. And I thought you'd have one small state each of the first six weeks. And I came up with Wyoming, Vermont, uh, West Virginia, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Alaska. And, and several people pointed out to me, well, that's a pretty lily-white slate. So point well taken. Mix it up a bit. Let's find some other small or mid-sized states that offer, that offer a broader cross-section of, uh, of the diversifying demographic of, of America. Let's do that. But let's keep that going. And instead of having a Super Tuesday, let's have a regional primary of four states. So you've got, for example, uh, on March 19th, and again, move this, that's a Tuesday. Move it over to Friday and Saturday. Delaware, Rhode Island, Maine, New Hampshire. Uh, the next week, Montana, Idaho, Nevada, Utah. The next week, move it to the Midwest, Nebraska, Kansas, Iowa, Minnesota. Next week, move it south, Mississippi, Arkansas, 
Alabama, Louisiana. Several advantages. Having four states kind of focuses it. I mean, again, it's, it's, not, it's not like one state where it's just really great, and it's not like Super Tuesday where you've got a dozen states, which is impossible to really campaign in, in that situation very effectively. Cluster it regionally so you minimize transportation costs. Again, bring that carbon footprint down. Always been thinking about that carbon footprint. And then um, rotate it. So in 2028, instead of whatever, whoever the first six states are in 2028, they are 2024, they won't be in 2028. Switch it around. Bring different states into the first six. Uh, switch up the primary order. I, I mean, maybe the best way to do it is to move the last states. In, in my list here, the last states were Oklahoma, Oregon, Washington, Hawaii. Maybe move those first. Uh, maybe move a couple of the other last states, like Indiana or Michigan, to the top six. So shuffle it around every four years. Uh, and maybe if we're still around as a country by the end of the 21st century, everybody will have a chance to go first. But um, there's more things that are, other things that are important about that as well. Again, not only the fairness of giving everybody an opportunity to vet those candidates over time, but also um, the, the truth is, you know, everything that happens in Iowa leading up to the caucus is great but the caucus itself doesn't work. It worked when the Democratic Party or the Republican Party were more like you know, small organizations that were basically electing their leadership, delegates, precinct committee captains, uh, platform committee reps, uh, rules and uh, you know, the rules people. You know, when, when, when you're dealing with that, you can meet in the living room. And Iowa caucuses used to occur in living rooms. That doesn't happen anymore. Now we're getting 400, 600, 800 people, 900 people. That's a mob. That's really hard to manage in somebody's living room. You know, it's even hard to manage in a gymnasium or an auditorium. And uh, the other important point is, as has been noted, it excludes a lot of people. If you work uh, evenings, you're out. If you're sick or elderly or have a, you know, have a child to take care of, you're out. There's all sorts of reasons why you are excluded. And as a result, in a state of three million people, where you've got, um, what, uh, 600,000 registered Democrats, something like that, 170,000 participate. And that's in a very, very high profile, highly promoted uh, campaign. So yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not democratic. And also, what else, what else isn't democratic is you've got a perfect situation. Bernie Sanders gets 6,000 more votes than the nearest competitor, and yet he loses in terms of state delegate equivalents. So <clears throat> the caucuses are great in a bygone era. They aren't great anymore. And they need to be replaced by a, a typical primary election with a paper ballot. Uh, the, you get rid of these ridiculous apps and voting machines whose, whose integrity is questionable. Have a straight up, um, you know, an old fashioned system. I mean, a way of, a way of processing those where you do have a, a quick count, but where you have that paper ballot so you know exactly what happened. You know, do that. On Friday and Saturday, the first Friday and Saturdays in February, all the way through mid-May, when the whole thing will then be uh, decided. One more thing. There's no need to have just the opportunity to vote for one person. We could have ranked voting, especially with the opportunity to process uh, those ballots with the help of uh, technology. There's no reason you could not go into a, a booth and say, okay, first choice, so-and-so, second choice, so-and-so, third choice, so-and-so. Rank your top three, rank, rank your top five votes. And then, there, I mean, and this is done elsewhere. It's been proposed for a long time. I, I think it scares the party establishment in both parties because it means it gives more viability to candidates who might be seen as a little bit out of step with the, 
the, uh, the, the forces that tend to control those two political parties. So, you know, I think, um, I think again, these, these, these reforms, the, the important thing is to keep what happens uh, in the early states uh, that allow democracy to really take effect, to allow, in the case I was talking about earlier, to allow voters to really see what kind of guy Joe Biden is. And to also allow voters to see how some of these other candidates, uh, you know, stack up. I mean, my own impressions from working really hard over the past year in Iowa, uh, you know, I, I could go on for a long time. But I feel like I got to know most of the candidates uh, in, in a way that you'll never get to know them, never get to know them just by advertisements and big events. And that's really, really important. Let every state have a chance. Start with the smallest states with some diversity. Um, in 2024, switch it up in 2028, 2032, if we're still around, 2036. <laughs> you know? So I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious there, but hopefully we'll figure out this climate problem and some of our other challenges and we'll still be around so that this, um, this process could keep going. Again, have it on a Friday and Saturday, two days of voting, have ranked voting, and um, yeah, and then get rid of the superdelegates while we're at it. Anyway, that's my proposal, folks. I uh, hope you like it. Uh, uh, someone else can run with it and make it happen because uh, I've got to move on to some other things. We'll be back in a few minutes, folks, on the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Across the Des Moines Metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location and stylish ambiance, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Scott Smith, Tina Haas Finley, and Nick Leo. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. If you haven't been to Noche, you haven't experienced the fullness of Des Moines' cultural revival. If you have, we're sure you'll be back. Noche located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. A quick shout out to our local business partners before we get back into the conversation here. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, located in the Sherman Hill neighborhood. That's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Gateway also has an excellent catering service. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, 
where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures great and small for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. And thanks to Hawk Restaurant. Hawk is located in the East Village, and 90% of the food served, even in February, comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. That's Hawk Restaurant. All right, so the the, uh, the program focus here is shifting a bit. Now, we, um, we've got Dr. Uh, Maria Filippone in the studio with us, uh, who is... Um, has frequently traveled to Gaza, and is a is is our as far as I'm concerned is our best local resource in terms of what's going on there, and she is about to make what your fourth fifth trip fifth fifth trip uh, later this month, and uh, I know it's always um, exciting to be able to go back and reconnect with people that you know there, but it's also disturbing. I mean, what's happening in Gaza is troubling. Uh, we just had President Trump announce the quote deal of the century. And uh, a quick and very uh, pointed response from over 100 Democratic uh, Congress, members of Congress, and even a lot of our, you know, a lot of Jewish allies who understand that there's a, a problem, uh, a political imbalance uh, between the um, Palestinian people and the, uh, and, and the state of Israel. And so, um, you know, given that, that, uh, that deal of the century, I, I don't quite know how that's going to impact your trip. Have you thought much about that? Um, I have not thought much about how it's going to impact my trip. Um, certain sources call it the steal of the century, As opposed joke to the of deal. the century. Not a single Palestinian person was at the table when this was uh, discussed. Um, it basically gave Netanyahu the green light to annex uh, land in the West Bank uh, that were Illegal Israeli set so it, settlements it, it, already. Oh, okay. Exist. So this is there, a part of the West Bank where settlements have already been illegally established, and this quote deal or steal of the century just uh, provides legal cover for that essentially. Pretty much, yes, yes. So, um, and also one thing to note, I read a few months ago, and it's true, I confirmed with um, friends in Gaza that the Israeli government has been offering money to Gazans to leave and never come back. Gaza. Leave and they, never the, come the back. The Israeli and... government has said, we'll give you permission to leave and some money if you leave and promise, sign a contract to never return So to are they Gaza. signing up to get on that, that, that flight that's going to Mars? I... <laughs> I mean, this is there is a flight going to Mars. Right. Uh, I'm joking uh, about them signing well, up for that, but that that is actually happening. I don't know of any Palestinian who has taken up that offer. Although, where are they I, going? I, anywhere out of um, Palestine. And who accepts them into their country? Exactly. That's a good yeah. question. Yeah. I don't know. I have not heard of any any of them. I would not blame them for um, wanting to leave Gaza. The the situation. The circumstances there are dire and horrific. Americans cannot imagine life under those conditions for one day, let alone your whole life. So give, give so. us a, yeah, again, you've been there a lot. You're going back again. What, what, what are the conditions like? Give me some, give us some ideas. <clears throat> um, this is their third, going into their 13th year of living under siege, meaning Israel has control over land, air, and sea. They're not allowed to leave. Um, it's over 2 million people, excuse me, who live in, in Gaza. Um, so they're not allowed to leave. They're not allowed to go fishing um, in a, off, 
into the areas of the water in the Mediterranean where there are fish. Uh, they're only allowed in the beginning parts, the part close to shore. Uh, that violates international law because um, the nautical miles for um, a country to be able to go and fish, to be able to just travel in the water is, uh, I can't remember, but they get shot, fishermen get shot. and. So what's the official justification for detained. restricting? If if they go, you know, four to six nautical miles okay, so offshore, why, why, why do they? What, what's their justification for that? Saying that they're it's security risk. How how is the fisherman going five miles, ten miles out to sea to fish a, a security risk? Exactly, that's a great question. Hmm. No, but I'm I'm trying to describe to you the um, situation there. Ninety-seven percent of the water in Gaza is not fit for human consumption. Um. Where does it come from? It comes from, well, the infrastructure in Gaza is really, I wish I could show you an infrastructure, but there isn't one because Israel has um, bombed water treatment plants, hospitals, airports, um, you name it, electrical, um, electrical plants. Israel has bombed them over the past 13 years. Um, and again, they, they, saying that they're a security risk or weapons are hit there or whatever. Well, and isn't it sometimes in response to rockets, uh, rockets being being From uh, Gaza, fired by Hamas right. or someone? Well, not necessarily Hamas. There are other factions in Gaza okay. um, that Hamas um, Hamas doesn't necessarily have control over. Um, and Hamas I'm is not, the ruling not, party, but Hamas they, was democratically elected right. in two thousand five or seven. Oh my gosh, I'm okay. getting my dates jumbled up. Yeah. But um, no, Hamas is. Um, I'm not defending Hamas, but they were democratically elected, and you know the U.S. government history of um, our involvement in other countries of electing um, governments that we don't necessarily like. We maybe try to overthrow them in some way. That's a long but list. That's a long list, yeah. but we're not going down that road. Um, under under international law, um, occupied people have a right to resist their occupiers. And um, Hamas, when they fire rockets, they say they are resisting occupation and siege. Um, and so under international law, they have a right to resist their occupiers. I'm not agreeing or condoning the rocket fire, but I can tell you from firsthand experience that uh, the rockets um, fired from Gaza into Israel, where usually almost always nobody is hurt or killed, sometimes, um, but almost always, you know, they just hit land or whatever. Um, they are quite different. They are primitive compared to the sophisticated missiles made here in the U.S. fired that we, that we Israel. fired yeah. into Gaza by Israel. The last time I was there, October of 2018, um, I went and witnessed the Great March of Return in Khan Yunus, which is a refugee camp, a city in Gaza near the southern border. And what is the Great March of Return? Um, the Great March of Return was started the end of March of, I want to say, 2018 by Gazans who um, 
march they go to the border it's the western border um with israel which is not necessarily clearly defined because israel has never defined its borders um but where they face barbed wire and snipers israeli soldiers and snipers um and they um peace for the most part peacefully demonstrate their um their right to return as refugees to their homeland. Symbolically, because they're inside the barbed wire, right? Right. Well, most Palestinians who go and do that don't even get close to the barbed wire. Some some do, you know, get because they get shot at. Yeah, they get shot at and killed. Yes, and Israeli soldiers shoot. um, They they stated in the beginning when they would just kill. They said we know where every bullet landed. Um, and they have they have sought out and killed journalists, um, medics, doctors, um, people who are clearly um, not part of the protest, but maybe helping injured people or um, documenting the protest. Did so you they feel kill. a danger yourself when you were there? Um, not from the Palestinians. No, but I mean from from the right, sniper right. Fire. But anyways, I was able to witness the Great March of Return the last time I was there, and it was it took my breath away. It was there were maybe thousands of people there. I don't. I'm not a good judge of numbers, but at least hundreds. And it was being led by these women, these Palestinian women in their thobs, which is the Palestinian dress, standing with megaphones just peace these women were peacefully leading it it almost had an atmosphere of a festival there were all these children all these kids and um, older children um, adults and there were men and women they were playing music traditional palestinian music and dancing dabki the traditional palestinian dance Mm -hmm. and it was it was they were just saying, we are here, we have a right to return, we have a right to be free. And a right to return to... To their lands, but also a right is, to be free. Right. They're also saying... Because they're not, allowed, they're not allowed to leave. They're not allowed to leave, now. Right. So it's over 2 million people in this 4 to 7 by 20-ish square mile area. To put that into context, Rhode Island is our smallest state. Mm-hmm. And Rhode Island is almost nine times larger than Gaza with just over a million people. Wow. So you have over 2 million people living on top of each other with four to eight hours of electricity a day because Israel controls everything that goes in and out. Electricity a day, um, dirty water, um, not enough food, little medical services, and they're constantly being bombed. The last time in response to the Great March of Return, um, Israel dropped about 100 missiles on us over a 12 to 13 hour time span. Um, and that's terrifying. Mm, I was true. there for that. Every time I've been there, Israel has dropped missiles on us, but not so much in such a short time. So how does the how does the greatest deal ever affect the current? I mean, this, the current situation is unsustainable. It's it's clearly an injustice, a, a travesty of of, uh, of, uh, of 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 any recognition of um, what what a what a nation needs to must do toward its neighbors or to its own inhabitants. It's just it's just wrong on every level, but. It sounds like this, quote, deal from Trump is likely to exacerbate the problem and maybe even make some of these, you know, these, these basic sanitation and, and, and livability issues worse. Oh, definitely it will. But I take my cue from my Palestinian brothers and sisters when I'm there. I, um, they know that they're not represented. They know the injustice. They just 
go on about their lives the best they can because if you're Palestinian, the ultimate form of resistance is existence. And so how many of them are taking up uh, the Israeli government on this offer of how much, how much money was it again? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I just <laughs> here's, here's, I read a, it. here's a check. Now leave and don't come back. Um, Haaretz is a great online source to read about this. That's they an have, Israeli publication. It's an Israeli publication, yeah. yes. But they're they're great. And they, they talk about all the issues, all the things going on in the world, not just in Israel. Mm. But they're, they're very good. Gisha is a great organization in Tel Aviv. Um, that works for freedom of movement for Palestinians. So, so we, we don't really know how many people are taking up the Israeli oh, government on this offer. I don't know if anybody actually has. Okay. But, you, but you, can, you, can, you can see the temptation, though, yeah. Well, okay. of course. I yeah. wouldn't blame anybody yeah. for doing it, but... So we just came through a very um, contested uh, Democratic um, uh, caucus nomination process here, and like a lot of Iowans, I'm presuming you had a chance to talk to some, maybe all of the candidates... Talk to uh, a lot about, of them about your concerns about uh, yes. Palestine, Israel. Yes. What? Uh, where? Where? Where are the candidates at in terms of being uh, responsive to some of the concerns? Tom Steyer was excellent on this, and Bernie Sanders was excellent on this. Um, I met Bernie for the first time in November of last year, and I was introduced by one of his staff members as this is Maria. She's an endorser, and she goes to Gaza. And Bernie said to me, you go to Gaza? And he pronounced it correctly. <laughs> Nobody pronounces it correctly. And I said... Well, I need to work on it, I said, I? I said, yes, I go to Gaza. And he said, and this is my Instagram profile picture. At this moment, he, when he was saying this, was when this picture was shot. He said, I trust you will tell me what you see there. And I said, of course, I've already given your staff some of my writings. And I've given my writings to every single candidate who was running for the presidential mm. nomination, Democratic presidential, even, and their staff, and to so many, a lot of different political people who came to Iowa right before the caucuses and stuff have my writings, um, because this is so, so important. This is the next civil rights issue, like, mm. you know. And Steyer also understands the Yes, problem. yes, he's good. Yeah. But I caucused for Bernie because... I, I love Bernie. <laughs> I love Bernie. He understands um, that for Palestinians, it's not about religion. It's about occupation. Mm, right. And so on the, other, on the flip side of the, um, the paradigm, who are some of the candidates who either didn't seem to understand your perspective or maybe were openly opposed to it? I didn't speak with Joe Biden, but I spoke with his staff. This was last summer when I was first mm -hmm. putting, getting out there. Um, Joe Biden's staff seemed to not really care about my perspective or not, not really want to learn more. Mm. I should say that. And so. you didn't have a chance to talk to Biden specifically? No, no. What about Warren and Buttigieg? Um, I didn't get a chance to speak with them specifically, but with their staff, okay. I did. And, and what was your impression from their staff? Um, I, I do like Elizabeth Warren. I do think that she um, is not very strong in mm. foreign policy. Right. And Buttigieg is um, a moderate Republican, basically, a 1990s Republican. Um, he's pretty, he, his, if you look at the statements he puts out and everything, it's pretty, um, it's, it's under this whole Zionist narrative that we've mm. had for And where does that come from? Why, why do you think he has that perspective? I don't know. Why do you think? <laughs> I don't know. 
I don't. I don't know. It's uh, it, it it may be because some of the funders he's getting support exactly. from are, are influencing his mm-hmm. perspective. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. But uh, just 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 taking even a broader look back. Uh, again, we have Donald Trump, who has been nothing but an apologist for the state of Israel and and just openly opposed to anything resembling equality and and justice for the Palestinian people. Uh, and prior to um, prior to President Trump, we had President Obama. What's your grade? I mean, eight years of Obama. What's what's your grade for President Obama in terms of his sensitivity to these concerns? Um, I'm I'm I believe he probably was sensitive to it, but his actions, he was probably a D. D's not very good. Not very good. So, and what gave him that D that that D record? What 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 was so bad? I about give his him record? Uh, maybe C C plus for his sensitivity to it, mm-hmm. because during the two thousand fourteen war on Gaza by Israel, um, he made a statement about I I don't remember the exact statement, but it was about asking Israel to show restraint or something along those lines, and immediately there was a ceasefire um i think he could have done a lot more but just didn't Mm. so no what do you think uh, a a progressive president who understands the inequity what should they or or could they do to improve the situation well first of all attach um conditions to the over 10 million dollars per day in aid we give to to israel Israel, which um, most yeah. of that money goes towards military. Right. He increased Obama increased the aid. Right. 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 So that's the first thing that can be done. Um, no, there's lots that can be done. But mm-hmm. I'm I'm going back. I can talk to you about the work I'm going to do. I'd like to hear. I'd like to hear from you when you come back. So, yeah. What what uh, what what specific work do you have planned? Um, I've gone. I'm a, a retired physician. Um, I'm not practicing, but I keep my license current. And I've gone in the past and I've done mental health care and medical education at various um, organizations throughout the Gaza Strip, um, organizations that serve uh, women and children. Um, And then I I took my daughter in uh, July of 2017 when we were invited by the United Nations. Um, And so I, I didn't work as a physician or whatever then. I was with her, escorting her. Um, and then the last time I went, I had recently um, received my yoga teacher training, and I, I offer trauma-sensitive yoga because mm. um, most everybody in, in Gaza is a trauma survivor, and the trauma is ongoing. Mm. Um, and I, so I, I plan to go back um, on this trip and do teach yoga to these same organizations. Hopefully I can pick up a couple more organizations because we'll be working a couple extra days than last time and I will um I will I will teach yoga trauma sensitive yoga and also more regular yoga because the the women in Gaza they they don't want it they want hardcore full-on asanas (laughs) yogas they don't want to just yeah yeah so uh that's that's your agenda, but um, mm-hmm. you're also I, I, I my impression is uh, prepared to note some differences, changes, maybe of course, maybe uh, maybe even newer problems relevant to this quote deal. Mm-hmm. How, by the way, how is the rest of the world responding to the greatest deal of the century? 
I don't know. I, 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 I can't imagine that. I mean, we have a hundred U.S. I, lawmakers who are saying, "Hey, this is this is this is not right." I take my cue from the Palestinian people, and I focus on um, working for them, helping them, uh, making people aware, and um, just trying to. I focus on trying to come from a place of love uh, with anybody I interact with. And I, that includes, you know, who is considered, you know, the occupiers, the Israelis. And I know so. you, you mostly have been to, to Gaza, but I also believe you've been to the West Bank. Mm -hmm. And is, yes. that, is that much better, the West Bank? It's so funny because you talk to Palestinians in the West Bank and you say, I'm going to Gaza. And they say, oh, they have it worse than us. And then you talk... <laughs> And then you talk to Gazans and they say, oh, the Palestinians in the West Bank have it worse than us because they have to deal with the soldiers every day. So the grass we is just always, have to deal grass is with always the, browner on the other side yeah, of the Jordan. We just right? have to deal with the bombing and the siege and mm. whatever. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, there, it's, it's, not, it's not a sustainable or just situation. I think uh, more and more the world is... Uh, not only admitting that, but uh, eager to see, uh, eager to put pressure on the appropriate authorities to mm -hmm. do something about it. So, well, injustice cannot go on forever, as mm -hmm. my friend Akram, my journalist friend Akram in Gaza says. Injustice cannot go on forever, and justice will prevail. And if they have hope, I have no right to not have hope. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you, folks. We've been talking with Maria Filipone, getting ready for her fifth trip to Gaza. And uh, we'll have a report from you when you get back. Thanks. All right. And, folks, we will, we will be back in uh, just a couple minutes here after a short break. I'm going to talk with uh, Sarah Spain about a fascinating art project that she initiated years ago in Tiananmen Square. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie, a delicious olive bar, and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let Gateway's catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Gateway's expert floral designers can even customize the perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market, good food, great entertaining. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-Table.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. 
A quick shout out to some of our business partners and our organizational sponsors here in the Des Moines Metro. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe located at 20th and Woodland. You know, they got a great fireplace you can sit by for breakfast, lunch, or supper. It's also my grocery store and a great place for catering, uh, catering you know, all, your, all your occasions. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Bold Iowa, a statewide organization working on climate change and organized originally to fight the Dakota Access Pipeline. That's boldiowa.com. And finally, thanks to Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Learn how to turn your yard into dinner. That's birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. Welcome to the show, Sarah Spain. Hi guys. And uh, activist slash artist. I know there's an actor. I know there's a there's a there's a there's a word combo there just waiting to be Artivist. created. Artivist. There we go. And uh, Sarah, of course, was uh, very involved with the Great March for Climate Action, and uh, has, has has been an artist for many years. And uh, you know, I've known you a long time, and I just recently learned about a piece of art that you f- performed. Can I say performed? Created? Initiated? In Tiananmen Square, back when that was a big deal. Yes, it was uh, the one-year anniversary. It's 1990, one year after Tiananmen Massacre. When you were stationed, you were in Japan, correct? Yes, I was on a scholarship in Japan the year before that, and I uh, took a break from my after my studies. I actually was in Japan for a couple of years, but went to China. I met some students uh, that were studying Japanese with me in Japan, so I got invited to come and visit them. And this is a year after the uh, Tiananmen Square Massacre. Right, so well, I was in Japan during the Tiananmen Square Massacre. And remind, remind us how many people were killed in that massacre. It is still oh. unofficial, but up to thousands. And it didn't just oh. happen in Tiananmen. Right. Massacres were happening all over. And this was the, the, the uh, Chinese government's response to kind of an uprising of democracy. Yeah, the students, made mm-hmm. main, mainly the students. Um, it sounds similar yeah. to, I mean, familiar to what we're hearing about in the news in Hong Kong. Eh? It really reminds me of this. Yeah. Yes, it's very similar. Okay, so you went to China. You traveled over there from Japan, 1990. No particular intent of doing anything relevant to Tiananmen Square, correct? Well, I'm not sure when the idea actually uh, came about. I was traveling for some time. I had studied Bhutto dance in Japan. Bhutto dance. Yes, it's the um, translated as the dance of darkness. Okay, I was going to guess um, something like salsa. No. <laughs> not unless it's no. I would the say dance of darkness. Okay. It's um. It was a a dance that was started in Japan. There's a whole history about it. I accidentally fell upon this group, and I studied with them. It's very strong. It was an avant-garde um, performance art group. Okay. It inspired me to do something on Tiananmen Square, and I was really shocked at what was happening. Of course, I was learning about it through the Japanese television, so it was limited, sure. my translation. So uh, I got the gist of it, though. So, um, yeah. I, uh, and at that, at that, at that point, uh, again, the, the, the democracy uprising had been squelched. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I can't, I can't remember whether there were some reforms that actually made their way into practice, but, uh, but, the, but Tiananmen Square was no longer a center of, of rebellion. And you, were, you went mm-hmm. there to kind of see what had happened. Well, I went back to just kind of visit the spot where all this happened. 
and they had not scrubbed it clean of all evidence yet. It was they had not scrubbed it clean of what? Of all the evidence, um, including like would be the tank marks that had mm. gone over. Um, the tanks had gone up onto the square, and there's kind of a delicate um, stonework on the square that got disrupted by that. And of course, you know the tanks did run, you know, just plow over students, and um, so some of those tank marks were still there. That is where I took a, uh, some rice paper that I had bought at a um, paper factory in Korea. And I brought the paper. And so this a large, would be a fairly large piece of well, paper, right? Well, it's a long roll. It's a rice paper. It's not very wide, but it's about, I would say, 14 feet long. And so I had a large graphite paper, and I rolled it on top of the tank marks and did a rubbing and, with the and, graphite. Okay, so you use a, a graphite pencil. Yes, it's a very large piece of graphite, yeah. Okay. And basically the rubbing leaves the impression of that those tank tank, tank tracks rather yeah. on the uh, rice paper. Mhm. Okay. So, here you are doing that. And what happens? Well, I during that time, um I had heard some soldier footsteps and I looked behind me and I could see six pairs of shiny boots behind me and um, I had a friend with me from China and I heard some talking in the background. I never stopped doing what I was doing. I just kept it up and um, and before I knew it they had disappeared. I rolled up my paper and I looked around for my friend and they kind of filled me in on what had happened. And what had happened? The soldiers asked him, or I think he came up and talked to the soldiers because mm -hmm. he was afraid something was going to happen. They were, the soldiers were maybe curious, maybe disturbed yes. at what you were doing. Well, it was two weeks before the one-year anniversary of Tiananmen right. Square. Okay. Um, be two weeks, be two weeks uh, before the one-year anniversary of the massacre. Of, yes, of the Tiananmen, <laughs> Tiananmen Square massacre. That's right. a hard word to say, but yeah, that's what it is. And so uh, looking up around the whole square now there were a group of i mean just lined up all around the square these soldiers with or whoever they were with sunglasses on so wait, with wait, their you, arms crossed the, looking right at me the six soldiers who were behind you who your friend talked to had left they had left and the, and then and you kept going with your work how mm -hmm. long how long did it take you to do that rubbing oh i don't know maybe 10 minutes 15 well, not minutes? that long no okay so the um so the soldiers left Mm -hmm. And you continued your work for another what, five, ten minutes or so. Yeah, and then you so. looked up and what did you see? So I saw a uh, group of men on all the top, all, on all the buildings um, looking down at me with their sunglasses on. And Not soldiers. Basically, just, just... I couldn't tell. FBI, soldiers, they just didn't look very nice. They had their <laughs> arms folded and sunglasses on. And my friend said, they all know who you are now. And it's probably a good idea to leave the country. Really? Yes. So, <laughs> did you run away? <laughs> what What happens next? I had um, about, I think I had another month on my visa left, but mm -hmm. he said it's best to leave now before the one-year anniversary. What What did they tell him that, uh, that caused such concern? Well, they were afraid I was going to start in a... Um, um, Some kind of a commemoration in response to the... Gosh, I don't know. I They probably thought I was going to start a, a protest. So this is something that, that... It didn't normally happen that people would come to the square and and 
do a rubbing of the uh, tank marks, uh, take photographs. Uh, these no. weren't normal activities. What I've learned later is the Chinese government squashed all of this information and did not l allow anyone to talk about it. The information about what you were doing? They didn't want anybody to even mention Tiananmen Square, uh, to even acknowledge it ever happened. So okay. it was interesting that the tank marks were still there. Yeah, you would have you would thought they would have found a way to, quote, erase those. Yes. Okay. Well, they so, hadn't yet. Now I understand they're gone. They're gone. Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and you, may, you may be partly responsible for that. I don't know. I just know mm. that they said it's good for me to get out of the country now. If I would have sat down, they did say it would have been more of a demonstration and that I, you know, probably would have been arrested had I sat down. So how, how quickly after that incident did you leave? Oh, I'd say within hours. Within hours, okay. So you, I, I was advised. You really so I took it, a train yeah. back to uh, southern China. Okay, and you didn't have any incidences getting out. No, in fact, um, it's interesting they didn't take the rubbing from me. That is interesting, and so you yeah. have kept that with you. This is nineteen ninety. This happened. That was 1990, and I think what gave me a little bit of grace is that I was on a scholarship in Japan mm -hmm. the year before, and my friend from China knew that, and I think they didn't want to cause too much commotion or, or draw too much attention to, you know, an exchange student mm -hmm. getting in trouble, or right. I don't know, but I was um, allowed out of the country with it. They didn't take it uh, from me, and um, I put it in a box and kind of tucked it away for what why did you why did you do that why why did you put it away well i didn't really know how to address it i don't know i i don't know uh where my place was with this i just knew i needed to make a recording of it and you know just have some kind of a reference of what had happened were you worried about some potential repercussions from the chinese government if you had started speaking out about it um, I still sharing do. it publicly I still do. So when did I'm a you, little nervous. So when did you start speaking about this? So the 30th anniversary was uh, last year, 1919. 2019. 2019, yes, because right. it was 1919 to 2019. 1999, right. So, um, we're, we artists aren't particularly great at math, right? No, we're not. <laughs> but I did know it was the 30th anniversary. I had wanted to do something at the 25th anniversary, and I was in Los Angeles at a large... Um, the LA art show and one of the Chinese artists there said if I had it I should show it and I should just put it in a room on the floor and just let it be seen so and you I chose, was encouraged but you chose not to I wasn't really able to find a place to to show it I wasn't quite sure how that was going to happen so and you've been you've been uh, I'll say out about this now for about a year Mm -hmm. Yeah, yep. and you've you've done uh, you've done presentations. Uh, you've given talks about it. You've uh, you've showed the graph. You showed you've showed the uh, the work. I showed it once. Once it's been displayed. You, well, actually, talked on two different once. occasions. I talked about it once at the Des Moines Social Club, and then I actually displayed it at Mainframe Studios. Mm -hmm. And I I was. Um, I think I had two different occasions where I showed it just for a few hours. Do you see the uh, the experiences having increased relevance given what's going on in Hong Kong right now? Oh my gosh, it's it's got so much relevance, not just to Hong Kong, but to what's going on in our country too. Explain that. Hmm. 
Well, as you know, they wanted a democratic future. They wanted to the students. The, the students, the uh, students who were protesting. They really yeah. wanted a democracy. They also wanted the government to be more transparent. So the people were very fed up with the fact that they had no civil rights, let alone the economy was, um, you know, suppressed. And they also had a great, a lot of corruption in the government that they were calling out. Um, I think it's interesting that even though they had some economic stability after that, and, you know, look at China now, they've got, you know, cell phones and cars. I mean, you see Apple stores. Coal-fired power plants. And it's an illusion. Yeah. Um, it is, what do they call it? This, like, um, it's a collective, they, they seem to have a collective amnesia that is actually dictated by the government to not talk about it. If you go to China now and show them a video of Tiananmen Square, most of them don't even know what country that was in. Really? That's how, wow. if they could they've, be on Tiananmen Square they suppressed it that, interviewing, that, that much. yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, and, and again, <clears throat> obviously, uh, you know, the student uprising back in 19... Uh, 19 uh, 99. 1989. 89, sorry, 89. <laughs> yeah. Uh, didn't have the kind of impact the students and others had hoped for. And well, we're seeing and we're seeing that no. the, the next generation of that is being manifested right now in Hong Kong, which again is a little mm -hmm. bit different situation, but it's a little bit different, but it's very very similar. <clears throat> and you you said something that I thought was okay. uh, interesting. You you said that you thought it, it had ramifications for our own country. What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, look at the people who are standing up to you know corruption in our country they're being fired they're being kicked out they're being suppressed i'm seeing a pattern that is very alarming to we're me. not being run down by tanks in uh, nolan plaza or washington square not or yet. in the mall in washington dc not yet you, do you think that's a risk you think you think it could come to that in this country i just don't i just don't think i like where it's going um i think that if you stand up and stand up for democracy if you are trying to preserve or stand up against any kind of corruption in our government, you're going to have some risk. I mean, look at the activists that are just standing up to protect our environment. Mm -hmm. and Now labeled as eco-terrorists, and many states have passed mm -hmm. laws, some states have passed laws that, that criminalize that, uh, that protest to an extreme Mm -hmm. uh, measure so yeah yeah it's kind of alarming to see so do you, do you see a strong message for people who are challenging our own government to be more democratic shall we say do you see do you see a role for your art in helping to get people to mo to motivate people to get them to understand that we have a lot to lose and and much to gain if we if we uh, if we take action now well the art i hope creates a dialogue a different kind of dialogue rather than just confrontation. Let the art speak for itself and see what the conversations are that come up about that. Triggering memory and building connections. What happened back then? How is it similar? I don't know all the answers, but I do think collectively we do allow that. Art does allow that sort of com uh, communication and um, uh, truth to come out in different ways. and. Actually, I don't know what the, the plan is. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of bravery to stand up for what you think is right. 
And as I see it, it's um, it gets riskier and riskier all the time. Do you have any uh, any presentations about your art coming up? I don't have anything scheduled right now. I have been in touch with a playwright from Hong Kong who is really? doing a uh, yeah that is in Iowa City, and um, he's doing some work there with uh, with a program getting uh, students to participate in some performance art. And he was interviewed on NPR, which I heard the interview, and I was very impressed because he was talking about Hong Kong and the similarities yeah. of Hong Kong and Tiananmen Square. So if people want to get in touch with you, I mean, you're open to talk with people about the art, about the, uh, the project? Sure. How, how do they contact you? Oh, that's a good question. They can call Ed. <laughs> and call and he me. knows yeah, right. how to get a hold of me. <laughs> okay. Ed at FallonForum.com, and we'll put you in touch with Sarah Spain. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thank you, Ed. Yeah, the uh, confluence of art and activism. It's a really important confluence. We have to think about it in terms of music, but there's a, a strong connection there in the art community as well. Hey, thanks for joining today's Fallon Forum. You can always hear our podcast on the Fallon Forum website. Also on the community-owned stations that rebroadcast this program and, of course, a Facebook broadcast as well. This is Ed Fallon thanking our team of Sherry Herdina, Kathy Burns, and thanking you, our audience.